at the beginning of last week, so we're talking about Noah's flood, and we're talking about the reliability of the Bible. And can you really trust the Bible from the first verse to the last verse? And read the different parts of the Bible based on what they are. Like, there's poetry in the Bible. There's prophecy in the Bible. There's historical narrative in the Bible. Historical narrative is what? Well, it's history. It is what does this say and what was the purpose of the authors when they wrote it down? Was it a you know, fanciful story or poetry like the Song of Solomon? Was it wisdom literature like Proverbs or Ecclesiastes? Or was it history? Or was it prophecy telling about things that are going to happen in the future from the perspective of the author that was writing it at the time? And all the things we've been going through in Genesis are written as historical narrative. And we talked about last week the fact that the number's crazy, but there's upwards of 80,000 flood narratives across all the different anthropological studies that we've done on different societies that are mostly gone now. But there's uh, a good handful that are really well-known and popular, and they are very similar to what this one is in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 7. However, they're all fanciful. There's a lot of weird things that go on. They're not written as a historical narrative. They're written as some sort of an epic. And there's a lot of gods fighting with each other and, and doing crazy things. And in some cases, uh, depending on the story, there's people sealed into trees. Or we made a giant cube, and it's this big. And we went and we got in the cube, and we floated around for a year. Even though a cube wouldn't float, it would just spin in the water, and that would be very uncomfortable. But the flood narrative is written as a historical narrative. And we can look at it, and we can say, well, does this stuff hold up? Does this make sense? And then we also talked a lot about uniformitarianism, $2 word, versus catastrophism. We'll say it that way. So we're saying that the earth, the, what we see today is based on what happened in the past, right? That makes perfect sense. But what we say, and what a lot of geologists and other scientists also believe, is that catastrophes are what made up what we see today. Not the same processes we see at work today moving over slow periods of time, right? So, for example, there's nothing in the, in the world, the processes that are going on today that causes the, the types of fossilization that we see in the fossil record. Making coal the way that we see co giant coal beds making oil at all. Like, these processes are not going on today. So that means that the thing, those artifacts that we use today, like fo burning fossil fuels, they had to come from somewhere. And if the processes that we see going on today did not create them, then how did they get created? What was the process that, that made that happen? We also, at the very beginning, I talked about a few points about the Bible's not a book of science. It's not the purpose of the Bible. The purpose of the Bible is to teach us about Jesus Christ, is to teach us about salvation and the disposition and relationship between God and us in the world. But we can look, if, if what the Bible says is true, then there should be evidence in the world around us. We shouldn't be looking at the world around us and, and thinking it's completely separated. It should match. God is the God of the universe and created everything. Then this universe, like it says in Romans, the heavens declare the glory of God. If, if what he says in his word is true, then they are going to declare his glory. Otherwise, we have a problem. So as faith, faithful, believing people in the Word of God, we should be able to look for that evidence, and it shouldn't be hard to find. And what we found so far is that it's not hard to find. It's like glaring at us and staring us in the face. Faith and reason are not opposed. There's no war. And like I mentioned before, many of the greatest scientists in our history that have given us the basis and foundation for everything that we build on today, you know, laws of motion, gravity, calculus, math, geometry, you know, all the math, but specific ones, um, they were Christians. We, we have sea lanes, and we know how to navigate the oceans because of a Christian who saw in the book of Job that it said that there were paths in the sea. God asked Job, do you make the paths in the sea? And he said, oh, God says there's paths in the sea. And he went and looked for them, and he found them, and he revolutionized 
sea travel. This is the kind of thing, because what we, the basis of it was is that God is a God of order, and he ordered the universe, and he gave us laws, and we can study the order of the universe, and that's what science is. It's, it's observing, and you can observe things, and you can make inferences and hypotheses, and you can come up with observed laws, because it does make sense. It's not arbitrary. This isn't like the ancient Greeks, where the god Zeus would arbitrarily just throw down a lightning bolt and take out a village for no reason. And you don't have to wake up in the morning and go, I wonder if the sun's going to come up today, because it doesn't always come up. Well, that, that's not the universe that we live in. But when you have capricious gods, like we read about in, in different pantheons, that's how it is. It doesn't always happen the same way because somebody had a bad mood. But our God isn't like that. We also talked about different problems that we had to solve, and we went through a number of those. I talked about how could we fit all those animals in the ark, but we didn't talk about that. We're going to talk about that today. How could the vessel survive a giant flood like that? Is there enough water on the earth? We've talked some about that. What about the age of the fossil record, ice ages, how many people there were on the earth? Like All these different questions that critics bring up, and they say that this story in the Bible is just stupid. How could you possibly believe it? And then as we start walking through all this evidence, we see it, there's a lot of evidence that show that this is true, and there's a lot of mainstream scientists that are way, starting to embrace catastrophism because the model that they've been using for the last 150 years just doesn't work. So let's go through. The other thing I told everybody is that if you had any questions and you thought of anything that you wanted to ask about related to any of this, or we'll go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about so far, I will answer them or bring Joel up. So there we go. <laughs> so let's go back to... We're going to talk about the ark. So Genesis 7.12. Start in there and we'll read, read some scripture. And the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. <clears throat> Excuse me. They and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two, all of flesh, which is in the breath of life. And we also know that there were seven of every, because they repeat that, the animals that went in the ark in this passage a couple times, and there were seven of every clean animal and seven of every bird. So we have, let's talk about the ark and the animals. How many animals? This is a big criticism, because we have millions of species today on the earth, right? There's tons of animals everywhere. So it's like, how could all those animals fit in the ark? Well, they couldn't. That many animals ain't going to happen. But we don't have to have that many animals. And I mentioned this a little bit last time. And we talk about the species, and then above the species are the families. And this is the biblical kind. That's the word kind. And it doesn't mean every cat. It means I need two cats. And I need cats because I need the cats that were alive at the time of the ark. They had more genetic material than any of the species of cats that we have today. Because over time... They do what in the evolutionary model is called random mutation and natural selection. How many people have ever heard those phrases before? Random mutation and natural selection. That works. That's a thing. It's real. It's not, it's not like made up or it's not something that we don't believe in or anyone believes in. This is how we get dog breeds, horse breeds. That's unrandom mutation. It's not random. We're doing it on purpose. But what you're doing is you're mutating... And every time we have a mutation, there's less information in the offspring. You can take two parents and you can create a number of types of offsprings. That's why not everyone's kids look 100% the same. Now, if they're way crazy, we know something else is going on. We're not going to talk about that. But the kids are all unique. And they all have different things. And some kids have better eyesight than other kids. And you know, one might be more athletically gifted. One might be more academically gifted. It's not that 
the, gen the genetic material of the parents is what created all these variations in their children. You do that over and over and over. But you, can, you can't take two offspring, put them together, and get the parent back. You can't do it. There's less genetic material every single gene generation. You can't get the parent back. So when we took all of these animals and put them in the ark, the estimates, so there's people that have been doing studies on this for the last 30 or 40 years, like in-depth. They do generational studies, genetic studies. They try to figure out all the details of how could this possibly work. And the estimate is, is that there were 16,000 creatures that were put on the ark, including dinosaurs. But you have to remember, most dinosaurs are really, really small. So it wasn't like they had, you know, a couple of Apatosaurus, which used, which everybody's heard of Brontosaurus, right? Does everybody know there's no such thing as a Brontosaurus? There never was. That was a mistake. They put bones together wrongly. So for years and years and years, and all of us growing up in school, the Brontosaurus, largest land dinosaur, and it turns out we were wrong. Sorry. So it's called an Apatosaurus now, and it's slightly different configuration. There's a lot of fossils like that they put together wrong, and uh, we put them in our books and on our cereal boxes and in our cartoons, and they just weren't even a thing. So I guess it was good it was in a cartoon because that's fantasy, right? Well, 16,000, which seems like a lot, but let's talk about the ark itself. So, Ed, if you could put up the, uh, the ark that starts with assuming an 18-inch cubit. Okay, you guys can all read that, right? So there's a number of different sizes of cubits. They range from 15 inches all the way to 25 inches. But this is the one that's kind of in the middle, the 18-inch cubit, which is what there were, even the Hebrews had two cubits. But this is the temple cubit. And a cubit was defined by the length from your elbow to the tip of your fingers. And it was based on who was in charge, who the ruler was, which meant that it changed all the time, because you might have a short king and his cubit was down to here, and another long king and his cubit's up to here. But 18 inches is generally accepted for the biblical cubit and what we walk through. So what do we see on the slide? 450 foot long, 70 foot wide, 45 feet high. That's big, right? That's how big it was. Three decks, 98,000 square feet of deck space. And it says right there, 20 standard basketball courts. So picture in your mind a basketball court and then stick 20 of them together and see how much stuff you could pile in that space, right? 1.45 million cubic feet, which is 540 standard livestock cars. So the deck space is 20 basketball, but all the volume of it was 540 livestock cars. Now, if you've been near a train recently and can think about how big those cars are, they're quite large. People are building houses out of them, right? Container houses. You've seen that. Like, put two of them together. Hey, we have a house. Sweet. Well, this is 14,500 14, tons displacement. So large metal ocean-going ships that we have today, same size. Next one on the ark there, Ed. There we go. Long time ago, 1609 to 1621, they tested designs based on the ark. Now, lots of other people have done this since then. This is the earliest one we know of. And they built the Fluven, a whole group of barges that they used for years and years and years and years based on the ark to transport goods around the Netherlands because they wouldn't capsize. The ark is a big, giant, floating barge. It doesn't have power. It doesn't have sails. It's not meant to like direct itself anywhere. It's just meant to float. In the tests that they've done in the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years, depending, there was a bunch of them done in the 70s, uh, they were able to get the arc to tip almost to 90 degrees, and it would always right itself. So the thing was really, really hard to tip over, which is why it would have survived all this. So between the size of the arc, the design of the arc, so the ratio of the arc, length to width, is a six to one ratio, and that 
as our shipbuilding people know, and the Navy and everybody, when they build things, that's a very, very stable ocean-going platform. So these guys knew what they were doing. They didn't just make something up. Like I mentioned, the Sumerian uh, biblical, or not biblical, but the Sumerian legend of the flood, they had a giant cube. And they had each, you know, nine giant rooms in the cube, and then they would put stuff in there. And supposedly that was going to survive a flood. That doesn't make any sense. This one, when you analyze it, actually makes real sense, which is pretty cool. How long was, so we talked about the flood. We talked about the 40 days and the 40 nights of rain. Everybody's heard of that. Go ahead to the 40 days of rain starting flood. This is the timing of the overall flood. And then we're going to talk about directly after this, Ice Age, because of how they fit together. So it rained for 40 days, and then the scripture says that the water prevailed for 110 days. Prevailing means rising, overcoming. And it says it prevailed, and it says it greatly prevailed. It uses all these words to describe how much it continued to move over. So if you go to Genesis chapter 7, verse 16, or 17, now the flood was on the earth for 40 days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about on the surface of the water. Verse 19, and the waters prevailed exceedingly, prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were upward or were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. Why does it say 15 cubits? Well, the ark was 30 cubits high, and the water line would have been about halfway up. So 15 cubits was to make sure that the ark would miss everything underneath of it. No matter what, it wouldn't, it wouldn't crack onto any little mountain or whatever sticking up through the water. So God puts these numbers in the Bible for a reason. It's just not arbitrary why he puts them in there. For example, he puts dates in here in the beginning and the end of the flood. He, this is the exact date of when Noah went in the ark and when Noah came out of the ark and there is some work that's been done because there were two kinds of Hebrew calendars. There was a kind of a business or daily calendar, and there was the religious calendar. And based on the calendar that Moses would have been using, the date when Noah came out of the ark translates to the same day of the month that Jesus was resurrected. Right? God doesn't put this stuff in here on accident. And it's, it's really hard to be critical and say somehow these different authors from different times over the course of a few thousand years got together and figured out how to make that work right so the waters were a total of 371 days so over a year this is how long it took from the floodgates being open and the rain started to come down all the way till Moses and those guys got out of the ark. Now, did that say that all the earth was dry and that there was no water left? It doesn't tell us that. So now we're going to get into talking about the Ice Age and how a flood model actually explains an Ice Age pretty much better than every other model. But just that summary there. Covered the earth in six weeks and then seven months for the water to go away. So we're, we're talking about a description of a tremendous cataclysm with a tremendous amount of water and that's what we have to remember this isn't this isn't a story that you can just dismiss and say nah, no big deal there was there's a there's actually a lot of information here if we're willing to study it and look at it and i i just think this stuff is crazy cool because god just poured all this out to us and just said here you go and he, and he tells us in his word he says come let us reason together Right? He wants us to think about this. He wants us to study his word. So let's go. We talked about the timing of the flood. Uh, Genesis 7.21, we'll read through here. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man. All those, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah 
and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. So that's the prevail part before the abatement part. So let's talk about the ice age a little bit. Now that we know about all this water that was on the earth for so long before it could go away. So the uniformitarian model that we have says that there have been a bunch of ice ages. That's the current thinking. Before that, there was only maybe one or two. Now there's upwards to 140. The scientists continually revise, and they see what's going on. And it was just slow changes in the Earth's climate over the course of millennia would cause cooling and freezing periods, and then we would wind up with an ice age that would be to a greater or lesser degree. There's tons of evidence around the Earth for ice ages, so no reasonable scientist really says there was no ice ages. Everybody believes that there were ice ages. But how many? How long? When? What did they do? Those are all questions that you have to look at the evidence you can see today and figure it out because none of us were there. No one was there to observe it. And we always have to remember that. No one was there. So when you see this really cool dinosaur model and he's got all these cool stripes running down his back, we have no idea what it looked like. There's no skin color left in a fossil. Like all that's made up. Whenever you see these things and it's like, here's what the dinosaurs were like, that is pure imagination, which is great to help you imagine, but there's no evidence about colorful skins and whatever. What they're doing is they're saying, here's what animals look like today, we'll just extrapolate that back. But it's an assumption, it's not a reality. The flood model, I've already mentioned this, the great fountains of the deep broken up. So I'm gonna, just, I'm gonna read this, this is a scientific article. Uh, I'm gonna read a portion of the article. And it's talking about the effects of what would have happened and why it relates to the Ice Age. And then we'll talk about some evidence for how this is borne out in what we see. So a shroud of volcanic dust and aerosols, which would be very small particles, would have been trapped in the atmosphere for several years following the flood. These volcanic effluents would have then reflected some of the sunlight back to space, right? Remember when I told you when Mount St. Helens erupted, it cooled the earth by like half a degree? One volcano, which wasn't even that big. We know of way bigger volcanic explosions in history. And just the amount of material that Mount St. Helens blew off in the six weeks or whatever that it was going was able to change the temperature of the earth for a few months, basically. Okay, it would have then reflected some of the sunlight back to space and caused cooler summers, mainly over large land masses of the mid and high latitudes. Volcanoes would have also been active during the Ice Age and gradually declined as the Earth settled down. So God would have broken up, created all this volcanic activity going on. And that would have taken more time to settle back down. Abundant evidence shows substantial Ice Age volcanism which would, have been, which would have replenished the dust and aerosols in the atmosphere. So as everything's settling down, now these volcanoes are still active and they're starting to settle down too, but over, over the subsequent years, they're still pumping lots of material into the atmosphere. And that's something that has an effect on the temperature and the whole climate that we have to deal with. Let's continue on. The Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets show abundant volcanic particles and acids in the Ice Age portion of the ice cores, as the Ice Age also requires huge amounts of precipitation. The Genesis account records the fountains of the Grape Deep bursting forth during the flood. Crustal movements would have released hot water from the Earth's crust, along with volcanism and large underwater lava flows, which would have added heat to the ocean. Earth movement and the rapid flood currents would have mixed all this together in the ocean. And so after the flood, the oceans would have been warm all over the planet because of all this activity that's going on. A warm ocean would have had a much higher evaporation rate than the present ocean surface. Much of this would have occurred in the mid and high latitudes, which would have enabled the water to create ice sheets. So when you have a cooling atmosphere and warm oceans, 
That is the only way you get ice ages. That is a very specific set of circumstances. It's not something that happens all the time. So there's a lot of reason why only these, again, crazy circumstances could have created something that, we did, that we've observed. Most of the evaporation, okay, I read that part. Therefore, to cause an ice age, rare conditions are required. Warm oceans for high precipitation, cool summers, and for the lack of the melting of the snow, only then can you get ice sheets. How big are the ice sheets that we have now? Anybody know? Biggest ice sheet we know of in Greenland? It's two miles thick. And they think it's 110,000 years old. That's what they're saying, the ice cores. I'm going to jump ahead just because this is kind of fun. It's one of my favorite things. I saw this article in 2007, and I dug it up. In, uh, you know, how fast does the ice accumulate? How fast does it melt? These are all things that scientists think they know. So in uh, 1946, five P-38 Mustang airplanes and two B-17s were flying from Nova Scotia to Europe, and they got lost in a storm. And they could not figure out where to go. They were run out of fuel, and so they went ahead and landed on an ice sheet in Greenland. And then they got out, and they, a few hours in the cold, and they got rescued. And that was it. 2007, they found the planes under 300 feet of ice. And one of them still flies. So they landed these planes, and people are like, well, they just sunk. Except that physics doesn't work that way. They were buried. So there's a combination of things going on there. But things, stories like this that you don't hear about very often, they show you that things are not always as they seem or as they are presented to people. The fact that those planes were under 300 feet of ice, the only reason that we found them was because treasure hunters are always looking for stories about aircraft or ships or whatever that were lost in certain areas, and then they go looking, and these guys use ground-penetrating radar, and they found all the, all the planes. It's pretty crazy. So another thing that helps us with the Ice Age stuff. There was a geologist who came up with a theory, and it's called the Lake Missoula. So after the Ice Age, or during an Ice Age, after, of course, because it was melting, he said there's a giant, giant lake covered most of Montana, part of Canada, and it had an ice dam over near the edge of Montana on the west. Because there's a place in Was eastern Washington. Anybody been through eastern Washington ever? You ever heard of a thing called the Scablands? It's, it looks like a giant just scraped off everything off of the sur surface of the planet. There's giant boulders that have just been tossed hither and yon, and it's just bedrock. I mean, it's, it's a nasty-looking place, and it's like, what happened? Because most of Washington's really pretty. Lots of trees, not the scablands. So this geologist, he starts looking at all this, and he says, this looks like what would happen if you had some sort of a crazy, crazy flood, and he started looking at all the evidence. And now pretty much all geologists believe that there was this giant lake that Let's see, let me read this, just because I want to give you the details properly, right? So at the peak of the Ice Age, thick ice filled with the lake, uh, Lake Bend, Oriel River Valley in northwest Idaho, blocking the Clark Fork River. Meltwater from the ice flooded the valleys of western Montana, gradually filling them until they held no more. It had risen to the point of 4,200 feet above sea level, based on abundant shoreline observed in the valleys of western Montana, most notably the hills uh, past north, east and northeast of Missoula. The water depth was about 2,000 feet at the ice dam. This lake contained 2,200 cubic kilometers of water, half the volume of the present-day Lake Michigan. And this is from all these observations and 
you know, looking at all the geology they could find related to this. Glacial Lake Missoula burst through its ice dam, probably in a matter of hours, and then reached over 60 miles an hour in places through eastern Washington and into the Columbia Gorge that emptied into the Pacific Ocean. It was 459 feet deep when it rushed over Spokane, Washington. It eroded 50 cubic miles of hard lava and silt from eastern Washington, scoured out lake or uh, lava over eastern Washington, resembles a large braided stream from satellite pictures. And although the stream had to have been 120 miles wide. This is, this is like they're saying, this is one giant lake that formed. And it did all this damage, created all this craziness. And the flood model says that happened all over the entire planet. The Grand Canyon was not slowly carved out by the Colorado River running down the middle of it. And we saw, we talked about the little Grand Canyon outside of Mount St. Helens that happened in the course of a couple days. And it looks the same. It's got side canyons and it's got all this stuff. Well, the geologist community is embracing this and they start looking all over the world for these large lakes that would have been, or inland seas that would have been created. And then when the ice melted, they broke and flooded everything. And they see that evidence, which lines up perfectly with what we believe would have happened after Noah's flood. So we get all the volcanic material, it cools off things, but the waters are warm, so it creates giant ice sheets. And then after they start to melt, you wind up with all the standing water that's trapped in valleys and mountains. And, and then they start breaking in various places in the world. So even after the floodwaters abated, the effects of this would have went on for many, many years and people would have had to deal with it. Why don't we have records of people dealing with that in the biblical record? Because they lived near the equator, right? They lived in very warm latitudes. So the people writing this didn't have to deal with ice sheets. They didn't see any of that. That was up in the northern, northern hemisphere. And the southern hemisphere. Let's not leave them out. Don't want to be northern-centric. So ge geologists today overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly accept the Lake, Mich the Lake Missoula flood. Before, they had trouble believing that there was a flood of those types of proportions. Later, many debated how many of these floods took place in the Ice Age. In the 1980s, opinions swayed from one or a few to anywhere between 40 and 180. So they just kind of keep adjusting their theories about what happened, but the evidence continues to pile up and pile up and pile up that there were all these catastrophes. Which leads us to woolly mammoths, of course, because why wouldn't it? The mammoths spread out into the northern areas during the early and middle-late ice age because the summers were cooler and the winters were warmer. And the areas were not glaciated, only the, the mountains were glaciated at this time, and there was rich glass, grassland. However, late in the ice age, winter temperatures turned colder and the climate drier with strong wind storms. Mammoths died by the millions. Do you realize we have millions of mammoth bodies and tusks in Siberia? Like there's pictures that were taken of giant warehouses filled with giant mammoth tusks. So they just go pick them up off the ground. And there was some theory that somebody posed that it was the tribes coming across the Bering Land Bridge and down and that they killed all the mammoths. It's like, wow, they must have some really nice machine guns or something. I don't know. Because there were millions and millions of mammoths. And they, uh, well, so those, they had those severe dust storms. What we have is we have mammoths, evidence of them suffocating and standing, suffocating in a standing position because of the weather. And they became entombed in the rock-hard permafrost and like I had mentioned before, they had food still in their mouths and their stomachs that we could determine what it was. In some cases, it was subtropical plants. And so it's, it wasn't a slow decay. It wasn't a uniform thing that went on. It was a catastrophe that took out the mammoths. So these are the kind of things that this evidence continues to build up. 
Let's talk about the age of things a little bit. Could you go to the first one, the, or the potassium argon slide? No? Yeah, that's you, Ed. Sorry to wake you. Okay, this was in the, in the movie Genesis History. It's also in his book. Those are the three ways that you test rocks, not living things. That's carbon-14 testing. We'll talk about that. This determines the age of things. So what do we have here? Potassium argon is the first test, rubidium, strontium, and then I don't even remember the name of the last one. But the numbers on the right are millions of years. This was one sample sent to three different labs, tested with the three different methods, same sample. Those are the ages they came up with because of the three different methods. So we go between 516 million years old to 1.5 billion years old. Why? Why, 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 why is this? Critics would say, critics of the flood model would say, well, yeah, but even so, it wasn't 5,000 years old. All of them are millions of years. But the point is, is that we're being told that things, the earth is 4.7 billion years old, the physical earth. And I can take a rock and I can send it off and I can get it tested and it comes out to these wildly varying amounts. Why? Because there's assumptions that are made. There's assumptions about how much material radioactivity is in a rock and all of the rates of decay are based on today's rates of decay. And this is, this is all interesting, but they took a piece of the lava dome from Mount St. Helens that we watched being created. And its age was between 650,000 and 380 million years old. And we know when it happened, like what day it happened on. This is when, it, this, is when we, this rock was created from lava. It's not, it's not that old. Sorry, guys. Next one. But carbon-14 is the interesting one. This is how we date living things. This is how we date anything that should have carbon in it that was alive at one point. So you're not dating rocks. You're dating creatures and plants, things like that. So basically, cosmic rays come in. They bombard the atmosphere. And there's very little C14 in, in the world. It's only created by the, the, the uh, cosmic rays hitting a nitrogen and it creates this chemical reaction. So you get this carbon-14 cycle, and it's radioactive. And basically, we just breathe it in our entire lives. All living creatures, plants, animals, doesn't matter. We're all breathing in carbon-14 for our entire life. So based on the rate of carbon-14 absorption that we see today, when something dies, it stops getting more carbon-14. There's no more. So you can say, okay, I could figure out how old this thing was because I know the rate of carbon-14 absorption and now I can look at this dead thing and I can figure out how much carbon-14 it has in its body. Great. We can figure out how old it is. Makes sense. Again, there's assumptions that the rate of carbon-14 is the same. We already know that fossil fuel burning that we've been doing over the last you know, couple hundred years has changed the level of carbon-14 absorption in the atmosphere. But the bottom parts of this slide so after 90,000 years, there should be no carbon-14 left in any organic thing. But we find carbon-14 in everything. Petrified forests, 650-million-year-old triceratops and tyrannosaurus bones. Diamonds, one, they're supposed to be 1.5 to 3 billion years old. Guess what? You send them to the lab, they test for carbon-14. The labs have known this since the most advanced labs that came out in the 1980s to do carbon-14 testing. They verified these same results, and they tried to chalk it up to the samples must have been contaminated. So labs have done test after test after test of this to prove that, no, in fact, no samples were contaminated. It's just a fact. Everything has carbon-14 in it if it has carbon in it, and it shouldn't if it's that old. If it's not that old, it should absolutely have carbon-14. So they tested in the coal beds. A 40-million-year-old coal bed and a 300-million-year-old coal bed were tested, and they all showed that both coal beds were the same age based on carbon-14, and they shouldn't have had any carbon-14 
in it anyway. But it did, and it showed they were the same age. The diamonds they tested, same age. So this is just crazy levels of evidence. People are like, what is going on? Scientists that, they presented all this data at a geophysical union uh, gathering, which is the major geological society for scientists in the world, and one of the scientists had his own lab, and he saw this presentation, and he was like, these guys are nuts, this isn't true. So he took samples, he did his own independent thing, and yes, in fact, he found the same results. And he published saying, uh, yeah, there, obviously we do have contamination issues, so we have to figure out how to not contaminate our, our uh, samples, kind of a thing. It's just like ignoring the evidence that we have in front of us. The contaminated hypothesis, that's right. Okay, if the worship team, if you guys would come up here and start making music and melody. But the Ice Age that, could have, that, that came after, which we know that happened, we have problems with how we determine how old things are. We have all of this catastrophe and all of this evidence on the earth that we see. And all of this is what we are doing in order to apologetically defend ourselves, essentially. Defend that the Bible is true, the Bible is real. And you have groups and groups of people that are trying to say, no, it's not real and you just don't need to even think about it anymore. But why, why, why have the flood? Why, why did he have the flood? Anybody? Why was there a flood? Huh? Wickedness. Wickedness. Judgment. This was a judgment. How many people? How many people died in the flood? So again, like I said, every one of these is a rabbit hole. So there are scientists that have been studying the genetics and the genealogies and looking at, okay, how long these guys were living hundreds of years. They were, it shows in the biblical record that they were having children into their old age. And it showed it like it lists them and it'd say they had other sons and daughters, other sons and daughters, other sons and daughters. Well, the fact that sons and daughters is all plural, that means they had a minimum, including the person that they were talking about in the genealogy, of five kids each family. And it was probably larger. And so taking the conservative young earth, age of the earth from the Bible version of it, which would make the numbers much smaller than they might be if you went to some sort of a longer age, it was estimated that there were three billion people on the earth. Approximately the size of the earth in the early to mid 1800s here on earth that we know of. Three billion people that God wiped out, judged, because he said that man's hearts were continually focused on evil all the time. We're not, we're not there today. We don't see that all of man's heart is continually focused on evil all the time. We're not there today. But they got there. And I just want us to let that sink in. And when I come back after this first song, I'll just give you a couple of scriptures that talk about this from Jesus and the Apostle Peter. And the fact that judgment is a real thing and there is another judgment coming. And we know that. And so it's not going to be different. He judged estimated 3 billion people plus all the animals. All the creeping things, all the flying things. Your pet dog, gone. You know, the cute little llamas and alpacas and all of it, gone. Go to the zoo and see the tigers and all that. All of that was wiped out because of the judgment. But he preserved it, and here we are today. So let's worship together. Let that sink in a little bit. I'll be back up, and then we will finish out our worship. Second Peter 3, 3 through 7. So this is Peter and Jesus and the next passage that we do. They talk about Noah and about judgment. They bring it all tied around. As far as they were concerned, 
you know, Noah was a real guy. And the genealogy of Christ goes right through Noah and his family. So let's read that. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So this applies in two ways. In one way, it applies that Jesus and God's judgment, it's like, well, we don't have to worry about it. It's not going to happen. Things have been fine. They've been going along the same way that they have been forever, from what we can tell. And you can apply that in a spiritual way. And that's he's talking about that. But then as he goes on, for this they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So just as we see that the community of science says that all things have continued the way that they have been today, that you, the key, the, the present is the key to the past. I look around today and I just see what's going on and I extrapolate it back into the past. And that's how I determine how things got the way they are. That's exactly what Peter says people are doing. But, he's, but it's also in the spiritual realm and in the, in the relationship with God. They're saying, we've been living for, you know, the last 2,000 years since Jesus was on the earth. Nothing's going to change. It's always going to be the same. And that's the people that were before the flood were saying, saying the same thing. We don't have anything to worry about. Noah's preaching for 120 years and nobody paid attention. No one came. So only his family was reserved through the judgment by God. So let's jump to the next one. Which is Luke 17, 26 through 30. And as it was in the days of Noah, and this is Christ speaking, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives. They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Jesus is saying, just like it was then, it will be again. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot. So he gives another example of a judgment that God poured out on a group of people. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, and they planted, and they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So that's the spiritual lesson of the flood. God is telling us, this is what I did. And when you study it carefully, you see that it was of unimaginable proportions. I can't even imagine 3 billion people or like today on the earth, I can't imagine 7 billion people. I can't get that number in my head. I mean, I can go to a concert. I've, I remember back in the days when Promise Keepers were really big and I went to one up in Boulder and there were 50,000 people in the stands looking around and seeing all these men, all men. It was crazy. It was cool. It's a lot of people. And it's, you know, it's a round off error with the numbers that we're talking about here. So we need to be thinking about when God gives us these lessons and these, and these narratives in the Old Testament, he's doing it for us to understand what's going on and understand the seriousness of sin on the, on the world. And that helps us with our own purpose as Christians and the church itself, which is the Great Commission, to go out and tell people about what's happening and what, what the world really is like. Christ gave himself for us for this reason. Redeeming anyone who wants to be redeemed. And he kind of laid that out for people in Noah's time, but did he really? Because the ark was not built for however many people wanted to get on the ark. God knew what they were going to choose. And the judgment was going to happen. And there's going to be a lot of people that choose not to believe in Christ 
now and have been since Christ was here. And we just got to keep praying and let the Holy Spirit work in our lives so that we can share the truth with others. And let the truth of the scripture and the reality of what God has given us to inform how we think, inform our faith. And when you hear people saying all kinds of things about how the Bible isn't true and you're an idiot for believing these kinds of things, just remember, there are answers for these questions. Everything is not set in stone because someone is confident and says, oh no, this is the way it was, doesn't mean that's the way it was. We have the only true, sure record because it was God himself who, by his Holy Spirit, created this for us and preserved it down through the thousands of years so that we have it now. Because remember, every book in the Old Testament is in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And our translations that we have now are the same as they were then. God has miraculously preserved the Word of God over time. That's one of the reasons that we can trust it. So let's not forget, too, as we worship, we have giving boxes, joyful giving boxes, communion on the left and the right, and just pray and think about how this works and what, you know, why God had to go through this tremendous judgment on the earth and what he says about the future. It's, it's heavy, a little bit, you know, not a happy message at the end, but this is, this is the truth of what we, we, we are learning from Genesis, the first book of the Bible. So let me pray, and then we'll continue to worship. Father, thank you for this time. God, we thank you for the skill of those that will lead us in worship. We thank you for their dedication and the work that they put in. We pray that your spirit would flow through the music and the lyrics into our hearts and minds, God. We pray that you would bless us as we take communion, Lord. We pray that you would help us to understand your word in a deeper way and truly feel your spirit guiding us and leading us on a daily basis. In Jesus' name, amen.